We continue on in a series called God in the Workplace, and the focus of our series is on how our faith and our work overlap. Our work could be your actual job that you may or may not get paid for, or it could be any kind of work, such as raising your children, taking care of your yard, volunteering in the community, anything paid or unpaid whereby we are giving of ourselves for uh, something outside of ourselves to create or do uh, or build or make or raise up something uh, we're calling work. And so how do we bring faith into our workplace Or how do we, on the other end, make sense of our work in light of our faith? How did these two come together, overlap, and touch upon one another? And so to help us out and to help us to have some perspective on that, uh, we have created some videos of different people among our congregation. And it's just a a bunch of examples of what that might look like. And so I want to invite you to take a look at this week's video. My name is Chase Street, and I'm a farmer in Crest, Texas. Well, I went to college and my parents uh, kind of persuaded me to look at all my options and not just go to college and know I was coming back to farm. So that's what I did. I went to college and got an ag degree, you know, but I, I was just not happy, even though I had a job I should have been happy with. I mean, there's tons of people that are doing that job and they love it, but it just wasn't for me. I feel like I'm doing his work just because I feel like it's a sign that it makes me happy to do this and I feel like he is blessing me to do what I love. I love several things about my job. I mean it goes back to very simple things. I mean that you start off and you have bare ground and you just put a seed in the ground. and It gets a rain or you water it and then from that little seed it just is a process and it starts growing and each week you can see the change. God allows you to be successful and make a a bountiful crop but if you're not giving it back and doing his work then you know if you look at it from his side then why would he allow you to be successful and and that's something that I truly believe in is that you know he allows me it's not that I'm out here and I work harder than anybody else or I'm smarter than anybody else but I truly believe that if you give back what he has already given to you, then he continues to bless you. All right, so uh, Chase is kind of in this section over here. Uh, He's be giving autographs after the service today if you'd like to go and uh, learn more about the street gin in Claytonville, Texas. Uh, I'm sure he'd be glad to fill you in on the details. Uh, Thank God for farmers. Amen. Uh, what a good work, um, wholesome work, and uh, just, uh, I grew up, my dad is a farmer and rancher, I knew I never wanted to do it, uh, it didn't take too many days of driving the tractor, uh, so uh, for me to say this isn't for me, uh, but I'm glad it is for somebody. I will say that I wore boots out, I like put my boots and my jeans, got all farmed up, and went out to see Chase, and then he's in his shorts and his uh, shoes and his Under Armour t-shirt, and I was kind of like, oh, I guess I could have just worn what I always wear, but... It's pretty cool. So uh, just a little review, because this series kind of builds upon itself. Uh, a little bit of review to refresh us. We have established in Genesis 1 and 2 that work is good. Work is a very good thing. In fact, God created us as human beings for the very purpose of work. He takes Adam, he forms him, he puts him in a garden and gives him a task. That's the very reason that Adam or human exists. 
And we are made for this. We're made in the image of God, which means we're made to do what God does. We're made to oversee. We're made to rule. We've been given a sense of rule and authority in the world. We've also looked at how early on in the biblical story that sin comes into play. And sin corrupts work. Sin separates us from one another, our co-workers. But sin also separates us from God, the authority. We see that early on in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve are hiding from one another as well as they are hiding from God. Furthermore, not only does sin itself corrupt work, but God subjects all of our work to futility. There's toil. We're not in the nice little easy garden anymore. We're out in the field, if you will, where there are thorns and thistles and challenges, and there is toil involved in our labors and what we do. God did this and subjected all of creation to futility in order that we might hope in Him, that we might come to the awareness of our brokenness, of our need for Jesus and our need for salvation, our need for God. If work was always easy while we live in these sinful bodies, these sinful corrupted state, then we would never cry out to God. And so it's an invitation to take our frustrations in life and use them, allow them to, to be a means of us crying out to God for help, for His Spirit, for His saving grace. And now we live uh, in this world where God didn't just subject creation to futility and let us stay separated from one another, but God sends Jesus into the world. And the death and resurrection of Jesus does at least a couple of things. In Jesus' death, he brings reconciliation. He brings things together. So separation from God means we have communion with God. Separation from one another through the death of Christ, people, entire groups of people can be brought back together. And in Jesus' resurrection, God is starting a new creation. Just as God uh, subjected the old creation, the current existing creation to futility, God has started a new creation, which means that we live in this two worlds right now. We live in the world of Adam, where we see around us all that exists, all the natural world that we are, but we also already live in the age of Christ where Christ, who is the firstborn of the new creation, has already begun to reign over the world. So we live in both of those worlds at the same time, the world of Adam and the new creation of the world in Christ that will someday come to a full fruition. What does it mean to live in both of those worlds at the same time? That's what we're trying to get our minds around a little bit. The challenge of this series, I think, as I'm trying to preach it, becomes... Uh, when we get this big picture and getting these big picture realities about who we are being created to work and getting that filtered into our everyday lives. What does Adam and Eve and uh, sin in the world and the serpent and Jesus's death and resurrection have to do with you on a Tuesday morning at 930? right? That's the, that's the challenge. And so I'm going to do my best to try to continue to get the big picture down into our lives, but it, it's really on you to try to take this and, and ask, ask God to help you discern this for yourself in whatever work worlds you find yourself in. It would be helpful if you haven't done so to go back and listen to all the sermons in this series. You can do that, get that information on the inside left part of your bulletin at the bottom, okay? Inside left part at the bottom. 
Okay, so we talked about Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. It's all good. Genesis 3, things went south from there. And then the human rebellion after that. And one of those examples of rebellion is Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel, where people say, come, let us make a name for ourselves. That's one of the ways that we tend to kind of deal with the fact that God has subjected all of creation. We're going to move on to the next chapter in the Bible and kick it off from there. And that is Genesis chapter 12, where God begins to do a new thing says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." Now, this probably isn't one of those scriptures that you would go to the local Christian bookstore and find it on a refrigerator magnet, but I think that this is one of the most profound scriptures in all of the Bible. God has already delegated a task to Adam and Eve. Take care of this garden. They messed it up. There's major human rebellion. Um, We see that in Genesis 1 through 11. And yet here God is again entrusting a great work. He's not just going to do it himself. He's going to raise up an entire nation of people. And he's going to patiently get that nation ready. And he's going to bless that nation so that through them, all the families of the world will be blessed. God is a delegator. He is a boss with a capital B, and he is delegating this amazing mission to a group of people. And so he says this to Abram, and he gives Abraham a family. After many centuries, Abraham's family is as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach. And this family, he rescues them out of slavery. Uh, to show his goodness and his grace. And he takes them into the wilderness and he gives them the law, a way that they would rightly relate to God in worship and a way that they would rightly relate to one another. So he gives them an order and and a way of living in and of themselves. And then God takes them into this land that he had promised Abraham several centuries before. He gives them land. And so they have everything they need to be a people Uh, an autonomous, sovereign people in this world depending upon their covenant relationship with God. They have numbers, they have a place to live, and they have an order of their way of life. God, in other words, has blessed them. And then out of that blessing, God delegates to them, this is how you're to live your life, that the whole world would be blessed, that the whole world would know who I am, that the whole world would come into a knowledge of that there is only one God, and that as you are faithful in this covenant to me and to one another, the entire world will be drawn to me. This is the major project that God has delegated to Israel. The problem, and it's almost a repeat in Scripture, just as Adam and Eve messed up, the problem is that Israel failed at their task greatly. A big O, F minus. They did not worship God as the only God. They were not content with God being their king, and so they stubbornly insisted on having their own king, which meant that not too long after that, we, through earthly authorities would have unjust rule and authority. After Saul, David, and Solomon, the kingdom split into two. And after that, it just continued to go south. 
They would intermarry with people from other nations, which allowed other gods, false gods, to be brought into their community. They did not take care of those in need among their own people. And so God does what any good boss does. He writes them up. And he writes them up again. And he writes them up again. And then he puts them in time out. And then he takes them and he puts them over here in exile. And then he puts them on a focused improvement plan through all of the prophets that he sends to them. And they continue to mess it up. God tolerates Israel and the mission uh, that he's entrusted unto them. He tolerates them beyond what any parent would tolerate their child misbehavior, what any employer would tolerate their employee. I am amazed not only that God would delegate in Genesis chapter 12 this mission to this group of people, but that he would stick with them for so long. God is entrusting something to these people, and he is sticking with them even when they're not sticking with him. And so God finally sends his son into this world, Jesus And instead of listening to Jesus, Israel's leaders hand him over to be crucified, thus proving Israel's inability to live out the Genesis 12 vision to be a blessing to the world. The crucifixion of Christ is kind of the final say of, yes, you were not a blessing to the world. And so God is having to do something new through Jesus God delegates to Adam and Adam fails. God delegates to Israel and Israel fails. Even Jesus, when he is teaching his disciples, they continue to be failures again and again and again. They don't get it. They, they're hard-hearted. They're stubborn in their minds. Why is that the case? Why is it that, that God continues to delegate to people and we continue to fail? Well, here is my theory. My theory is that we continue to fail, not because the task is too great. If the task was too great, then God is just being mean. It's like me handing my keys to my seven-year-old and saying, hey, go to the store. That's not good, is it? That's not good for him. It's not good for anyone out there. And it's not good for my car. That's, that's not what's going on here. God's not giving them something that's so far above them. That's not a good boss. That's not good authority. What's happening here and why this is a problem is not because God is delegating to them. The problem is they have authority issues. And because Adam and Eve have authority issues, because Israel has authority issues, we have authority issues. And the earlier we can get to the point of admitting that, that that's part of what it means to live in this sinful state, then the better off we are going to be. We get these authority issues because they're embedded deeply within our spiritual DNA. We are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve who have passed down this disobedience embedded in our being. We call it sin. But there's another reason why we have authority issues. It's because every one of us has had authority figures in our lives who haven't been perfect because There are no authority figures in our lives outside of God who are perfect. Whether it's a parent or a coach or a teacher or a boss, we know out in the world there are major abuses of authority. But even those who have been good parents, good bosses, good coaches and teachers, good mentors in our lives, we know that they're not even the perfect authority figures. I know that I'm not the perfect father. I know that I'm not the perfect boss 
When I coach and if I teach, I'm not the perfect coach and teach or mentor. I know that I make mistakes. What happens is we take these experiences of our imperfect authorities and we tend to project that onto God. We tend to say, well, I know I've been burned by people in authority over me and God, therefore, must be the same way. We take something imperfect and we put it on someone who is perfect. And that really is the challenge of faith. It's been the challenge of faith from day one. Do we really believe that God is good? Do we believe that God is good in spite all the evidence in the world that might try to tell us otherwise? It was Adam and Eve's decision. Does God really have your best interest in mind? No, he doesn't. He knows that if you eat that fruit, that you will be like him, knowing good and evil. They believe the lie rather than accepting the truth. And we've been doing it ever since. We have authority issues. And so how do these issues with authority play out in our work world? We are all in some ways in positions of authority over somebody else. Parents, you're in a position of authority over your children. If you, in the work world, you might be in position of authority over others. But we also, at the same time, have somebody that is in some kind of position of authority over us. We may experience that directly in our working environment. We may experience that in our family. We may experience that if we have to give an account to a governing board or, or whatever that might be. Well, let's look into some scripture and try to figure out how do we deal with these issues of authority that has plagued us ever since Genesis chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, or they may lose heart. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever your task, put yourselves into it as done for the Lord and not for your masters, since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you serve the Lord Christ." For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong has been done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, for you know that you also have a master in heaven. In this scripture, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, there are three categories of people. There are wives and husbands, there are children and parents, and there are slaves and masters. Now, some may have a hard time with Paul's commands here, especially with the ones regarding to slaves, and for some people, the ones regarding wives. But Paul is working within the existing structure of the world at the time. Slavery was not necessarily tied to race back then, as it is in America or was in America, and Paul would not have thought of a world in this age where slavery wouldn't have been able to exist. I just have to put all that on the shelf right now. Don't have time to go into the depths of it. What is surprising, however, and what is countercultural about this passage is that Paul is admonishing those in authority. Not just those under authority, but those who are in authority. He says, husbands, love your wives. Fathers, 
do not provoke your children. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. Of course, Paul also addresses those under authority. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Taking this from the bottom up, if you have someone that is over you, then Paul is saying, do your task as if you're doing it for the Lord. That you're not really just doing it because the boss with a little b told you so, but you're doing it because you have a boss with a big capital B. Because somewhere in there, we're not just working in our little world or our little company, but that ultimately we're all working for God. Slaves often did not do glorified work. But Paul says, even though the world's not noticing, even even though your overseer may not notice or pay attention to what you are doing, do it as for the Lord because God is noticing. God is watching your work. You may not feel like your work gets noticed, but God notices what you do in all things. And therefore, do everything. Do everything, as verse 17 says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other side of that, if you find yourself over other people, then Paul says to treat them with love and respect because God notices that as well. God notices how we treat those that He has entrusted unto us, whether they are our children our employees, or whoever that may be. All of this is because of a day in the future when God will make all things right. The Scripture says that God will pay the wrongdoer back. It also says that He will reward the faithful. What we do in this world, in this life, matters. What we do in our work world matters and is connected to the new world in Jesus that God has already created. Yes, we still inherit this old world of Adam, but God has created a new world in Christ and our work in that world will have its way and its effect. I can't exactly spell out the the calculus on what that's supposed to even be or look like, but the things we do in this world and in history makes a difference. The best example of this, of course, is Jesus. Jesus, according to Philippians 2, says, Though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, a man, humbled himself and submitted himself to the authority of his heavenly Father. Jesus ultimately believed in the goodness of God. And because he believed in the goodness of God, he was willing to even submit himself to earthly authorities, even to the point of his own death on a cross. And God noticed, did he not? Verse 9, Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory 
of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself under the authority of the Heavenly Father. He did not have authority issues. He fully trusted God the Father, which means that he submitted himself to the powers of this world. But God was watching. And because of that, God exalted him. Jesus is the one who submitted to God's authority, has been given authority over all of heaven and earth. Today, brothers and sisters, I invite you to take wherever you are, whether you feel like you're stuck in a place and you're stuck uh, in a meaningless job under authorities that you may not like, take that and place that in the larger context that God is taking notice. Or if you're just going down the road of life and you're just kind of taking things for granted and, and, and you're not respecting your authorities, take notice that God is paying attention. <laughs> that what we do in the here and now matters. If you have the honor and the blessing of being able to oversee others, that, res- that responsibility, consider it a sacred responsibility, not just for the bottom line of the business, but for the glory of God. All that we do, do for the glory of God. To take wherever we find ourselves and to know that God is going to take care of it all in the end and that how we do it now matters. Let us take our Tuesday morning at 9 30 a.m. and give it to God. Would you pray with me?